Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Ronald C. White, who has authored a new book with Random House, which releases this week, titled Lincoln in Private, What His Most Personal Reflections Tell Us About Our Greatest President. Ron is a New York Times bestselling author of several several books. He's written on Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, uh, as well as other books of social and political history. Uh, and we're really thankful that he's joined us to discuss his new book today. Ron, congratulations on Lincoln in Private, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be with you. Great. Well, it's great to have you here, and it's, it's a real honor to meet you as well. Uh, Ron, I've spoken a little bit uh, about your background, but before we get into your book, can you tell our listeners some more about yourself and, and some more on, on your background as a writer? I've always been interested in history from high school, college. One of my approaches to history is to try to write what I call from the inside out. I'm interested in what a person did. Lincoln led the nation through the Civil War. Ulysses S. Grant won the Civil War as a general. But I'm really interested in the formation of people, their inner life. I recall reading the biography by John Meacham of George H.W. Bush, and I was struck by the fact that one reason the biography was so good was that he received permission to look at the diaries of George and Barbara Bush. So Lincoln never wrote a diary. (laughs) He didn't live long enough to write a reminiscence, as Ulysses S. Grant did. But what I discovered over time was that he had a habit of writing little notes to himself. Uh, He never dated them, never titled them, never signed them. And I think this is a way of getting behind the public Lincoln to the private Lincoln. So this has long fascinated me. I didn't know until fairly recently how many notes he actually had written. And when I contacted the Lincoln Papers Project in Springfield, Illinois, and asked them, they said, well, we have 111 of these notes. I think he wrote hundreds of them, but we have 111 of them that have been saved. And so that's the basis of this new book on Lincoln in private. Very good. Well, um, can you tell us what what sort of prompted your research for the book? Um, How does it differ from from other things that have been written on Lincoln or maybe enhance our understanding of uh, the things that have been written about Lincoln? Well, interestingly, I live in Southern California and the Jonathan Club, the oldest club in Los Angeles, invites me to speak every February around President's Day. The host jokes about the fact that in January every year they talk about the stock market and every year I'm the speaker who talks about Lincoln. Well, after you've talked about Lincoln 10 or 11 times, I thought I got to come up with a new talk. And so I started talking about these fragments 
And then as people responded, they would say to me, gee, this would make a great book. I wasn't initially thinking of doing this in a book, but the more I thought about it, I thought, no, this, this really offers some insights into Lincoln that the traditional biographies, including my own biography of Lincoln, do not tell us. And that became the origin uh, and the inspiration for this book. Well, I, I think you, you can't really understate the importance of these frag these fragments, these notes of Lincoln, because, um, you know, they've been scattered across different archives as, as you talk about, and they've never really been examined as a, as a coherent whole. And, um, I think what emerges in, in your book is, is a really thorough portrait of, of Lincoln. You get his intellect and his, his empathy, fears, ambitions. Um, so you've divided the chapters into three parts. The, the first part is titled lawyer, Ron, can you walk us through this first part of the book? Yes, and let me just, as we begin, use say a little bit more about that word fragment. Hmm. What we mean is that some of the notes are fragmentary, meaning that he would literally end in the middle of a word or the middle of a sentence. It's like you and I, in our situation, something calls us away when we're writing the note down. And so he just stops, and for whatever reason, he never really returns. So in the first part of the book, uh, Lincoln writes only one note in the 1830s, uh, seven notes in the 1840s. Why is that? Because I think as a young man growing up in, as a youth in, in, in Kentucky and, and then in Indiana, he, when he moved to New Salem, he would sleep in the back room of the store where he worked or he would board with various families as a single man. This wasn't a habit that could allow him to keep these notes. But he does write more notes in the 1850s. He serves a single term in Congress, 1847 to 1849, and then he returns to Springfield. During that term in Congress, he had taken a stand against the war with Mexico, challenging President James Polk, claiming that Polk had argued that the Mexicans had started this war. And Lincoln says, tell me the spot where they crossed the boundary. I'm quite sure, Lincoln says, that the Americans started the war. So he comes back, and now he's pretty much resigned to the fact that maybe his political career is over. He's going to become a lawyer. And the second chapter focuses on what he calls, or the editors call, his notes for a lecture to lawyers. Uh, He becomes a very successful lawyer. One of the greatest parts of his law practice is what he does on what's called the Eighth Judicial Circuit. This is an area twice the size of Connecticut in central Illinois. The way one became a lawyer in those days was to study with a lawyer, to become a clerk of a lawyer. But Lincoln's out on that law circuit, Eighth Judicial Circuit, about 185 days a year. So he doesn't have time to host people in his law office in Springfield. So he decides, I think, I imagine, I'll give a lecture to lawyers. Well, there's no evidence that we ever have a finished public lecture, but we have these notes. Let me just read the first sentence. I think it's remarkable. Sure. I am not an accomplished lawyer. I find quite as much material for a lecture in those points where I have failed as in those wherein I have been moderately successful. Lincoln was an accomplished lawyer. He was already a very famous lawyer in Illinois. He was even practicing outside of the state of Illinois. Can you, find, can you imagine a modern leader, a lawyer, 
CEO of a business, president of a company or a political leader saying, I find quite as much material in those points where I have failed as in those where I have been moderately successful. These notes, and lawyers love it. A friend of mine who's a lawyer in Texas has used these notes in a lecture to all the lawyers of Texas. I think this says so much about Lincoln. We forget that he served 12 years as a politician. He served 24 years as a lawyer. So this note, chapter two, at the heart of part one, is a very important note that we need to read again. That's very good. Well, Ron, as as we think about Lincoln um, grappling with the problem of slavery and and offering uh, rebuttals to to those who would support the institution, uh, and then also as we as we think about Lincoln and republicanism, what can you tell us from uh, the second the second section of um, the book, uh, Lincoln the Politician? I call it Lincoln the Politician's Act because in 1854. After five years of full, literally full-time work as a lawyer, the Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed. This act will allow the extension of slavery into the Western territories, Nebraska, Kansas, much larger in geography than they would be ultimately as states. Well, Lincoln is really overwhelmed with anger. The idea that slavery is going to expand He believed that he couldn't do anything about slavery where it already existed, but he wanted to stop it from expanding. And I love these words when he offers his first political speech after the enactment of this law. We were thunderstruck and stunned, and we reeled and fell in utter confusion, but we rose each fighting, grasping whatever he could reach, a scythe, a pitchfork, a chopping axe, or a butcher's cleaver. We struck in the direction of the sound, and we are rapidly closing in upon him. This communicates, does it not, the emotion of Lincoln? Well, but before he started speaking on subjects, and this is something I think we haven't fully appreciated, we have our own 24-7 news cycle, Lincoln took the time, and this is what the notes function as, to think about this. So one of the most remarkable notes is not at the Lincoln Papers in Springfield, Illinois, But fortunately for me, it's in the home of a remarkable person in Dallas, Texas, who has his own private library and his own full-time curator of that library. And he allowed me to use this note, which he believes is perhaps the most valuable note, valuable document in his entire collection. It's very brief. Let me just read it so that we can appreciate it. If A can prove, however conclusively, that he may have right enslave B, why may not B snatch the same argument and prove equally that he may enslave A? You say A is white and B is black. It is color then, the lighter, having the right to enslave the darker? Take care. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. Oh, you do not mean color exactly. You mean whites are intellectually the superior to blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them. Take care again. By this rule, you are to be slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. 
but you say it is a question of interest, and if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well, and if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. Wow. I can almost imagine Lincoln, the lawyer, walking up and down in a courtroom using this logic to take on an argument against an opponent. Lincoln never uses this particular fragment or note in a public lecture, but I think it's at the foundation, and this is the function of these notes, of his whole thinking about slavery. It's really good. You asked also, Zach, about the Republican Party, and there's two notes that I include about the birth of the Republican Party. Lincoln was a Whig. Uh, The Whigs were the predecessors of the Republican Party. And they were a national party. But then as the Whigs sort of were beginning to lose uh, their, their residence, the Republican Party was formed starting in 1854. And Lincoln, a little reluctant because his DNA was loyalty, but he did join the Republican Party. But now its opponents argued that it was not a national party, but a sectional party. Why sectional? because it was strongly anti-slavery. And obviously people in the South who were members of the Whig party chose not to join the Republican party because it was anti-slavery. And one of the interesting things about the two notes that I include in part two is Lincoln's ability to ask questions that no one else was asking. In the midst of the enthusiasm for the Republican party, he was aware of objections to the party. And the main objection was this is a sectional party. And he tried to answer that question in a very interesting kind of way. In the midst of this, he also saw one other problem for him in the Republican Party. It's then and it's also now. It was the question of nativism. People were joining the Republican Party who argued that the only real Americans were Native Americans, not immigrants not Catholics. And this, the, many of the immigrants coming into the nation in the 1840s and 50s were Catholics. And Lincoln was very much bothered by this. So again, the, the note functions as a way before Lincoln speaks on the Republican Party, which he will do as an advocate, he wants to confront the objection. It's a sectional party and try to answer that objection. Really good. Well, Ron, as we move to this third section, these third set of notes dated uh, in the early 1860s during the Civil War, uh, we see in one of these even some some surprising theological discussion from Lincoln. Um, can you talk to us about what uh, these set of notes uh, tell us about Lincoln while he was president? Well, thank you. Yes, I think the theological question or the religious question Lincoln has often been, people have wondered, what was Lincoln's religion? He didn't join a church, so perhaps he's not religious. If we know anything about his biography, and let me sketch this in, he was born in Kentucky as a young child, was taken with his family to southern Indiana. Both of his parents joined Baptist churches It was a time of what was called the Second Great Awakening. And Lincoln rebelled against these Baptist churches who, for him, even as a young boy, he found way, way too emotional. Uh, 
And for the rest of his life, he was suspicious of emotion, suspicious of feeling, and determined that P would become a person of reason, of rationality, of logic. And so he did what a lot of young people then and now did. He rejected the faith of his parents. He became what was called in those days a fatalist, kind of a kissing cousin, I like to say, of deism. If there was a God, it was a watchmaker God in the sky, but never entered into history. When he moved to New Salem in 1831, just barely 22 years old, his friends saw him as a potential aspiring politician, But in his first months there, he wrote a paper criticizing the Bible, criticizing what he called revealed religion. And so his friends, and we have multiple witnesses to this, someone ripped the paper that he wrote out of his hands and threw it into the fire. Then Lincoln, I argue, is on a journey. We've given him credit for being on a political journey. We give him credit for being on a journey in terms of his understanding of slavery, but somehow we've made him stand still and concrete in his religious views as a young man in his 20s. I argue that he's on a journey. So that the end of his life in the second inaugural address, March 4, 1865, in 701 words, he will mention God 14 times, quote the Bible four times, and invoke prayer three times. Well, where does this come from? What no one knew on that March 4, 1865 day was that Lincoln had written something out, one of these unknown fragments. It was discovered after his death by his young secretary, John Hay, who saved it. And then remember I said Lincoln didn't title any of these? Well, Hay gave it a title, Meditation on the Divine Will. It's very brief. Let me read it just to get the sense of it. The will of God prevails. In great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be, and one must be wrong. That's the logical Lincoln, I think, speaking. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. And then this profound sentence. In the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party. And yet the human instrumentalities working just as they do are the best adaptation to affect his purpose. I'm almost ready to say this is probably true, that God wills this contest and wills that it shall not end yet. By his mere quiet power, Remember how he didn't like the noisy God of his youth. By his mere quiet power on the minds of the now contestants, he could have either saved or destroyed the Union without a human contest. And having begun, he could give the the victory to either side any day. Yet the contest proceeds. We think he wrote this in September of 1862. The North had just suffered another disastrous defeat the victory of the South at the Second Battle of Bull Run or the Second Battle of Manassas, called variously by either side. Lincoln convened an emergency cabinet meeting. Fortunately for us, three of his cabinet secretaries kept diaries. And one of the secretaries, Edmund Bates, the attorney general, wrote, Lincoln said he was wrung by the bitterest anguish, so much that he thought of even hanging himself. I think that after that cabinet meeting, that very afternoon, 
two and a half years before the second inaugural, he sits down and writes out this meditation. And notice how it ends. God could give the victory to either side. My goodness sakes, he's the commander in chief. He's supposed to leading the union to victory. Well, he would never have been willing to say that in public. The victory could go to either side. One more example of how these notes are something Lincoln would never say in public, but he was thinking and writing in private. Yeah, that's really good. Well, Ron, I'm really glad that uh, you included uh, the the appendix to the book where you, where you keep uh, these notes there at the end so we can see that. Uh, it's a really well done book. So I as you're reflecting on the book, uh, what is it that you're, you're hoping readers will take away? Well, just first to underscore the appendix, this is the first time ever that all 111 of the surviving notes are together. So the curious reader can enjoy reading those notes. I also was privileged to do the audio book. Usually I thought only Michelle Obama or whomever does audio books. I never do my previous audio books, but they let me do this one. But interestingly, they said, would you read five more of the fragments? So I selected five more from the 111 and do read them in the audio book. What I want people to see is that behind the public Lincoln, there's a private Lincoln. There's a person who is willing in his notes to express his feelings. There's another note where he talks about his own failure after losing a a Senate election. Senators were elected by state legislatures. I think audiences would be very surprised when Lincoln says, my life is nothing but a failure, a flat failure. This also shows us Lincoln's nimble mind. I would like to say, and I'm a sort of an advocate here, that I wish we had more political leaders who were intellectually curious like Lincoln is. It isn't that he solves all of these problems, but he's willing to ask these questions. And of course, isn't it remarkable to remind people that Lincoln had only one year of formal education? But he's a testimony to the fact that all of us should become lifelong learners. So at age 40, while he's traveling the Eighth Judicial Circuit, he's reading Euclid's theorems, thinking that Euclid can help him learn to think more logically. So there's so much here that for us to find that we have not found. I did not know this when I wrote my own biography of Lincoln in 2009. Lincoln is continually, I think, a person who can amaze us. And I'm hopeful that each generation will discover him afresh. Very good. Really well said. Well, Ron, you've been really generous with your time. Uh, We're grateful that you've shared this book with us. Uh, But before we wrap up, can you share with our listeners what you plan to work on next? Yes, actually, I'm working on it. I'm going to do a biography of, I am doing a biography of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Chamberlain was rediscovered in in recent years by the novel Killer Angels in the movie Gettysburg. He was the hero of Little Round Top at Gettysburg, where single-handedly he led his men as they literally ran out of ammunition to defeat by raising their bayonets the Southern Charge. He went on to become the governor of Maine four times, president of Bowdoin College. As a student, he mastered nine languages in the whole writing and speaking about the Civil War. 
he perhaps is the best because he was professor of rhetoric at Bowdoin, and he really is a remarkable writer and speaker. So I'm returning to Maine this summer to complete my research, but in this interim, in the pandemic, I've written 13 of 17 chapters, and I hope within the next uh, year and a half or two that this biography of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain will be published by Random House. Very good. Uh, well, we will look forward to that, and maybe we can have you back on the show when it's out. I would love to do so. Great. Well, for now, thank you for writing this book. It's called Lincoln in Private. It's out with Random House this week. Uh, and we'll look forward to seeing you all next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>